This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I'm Christy Schreiber, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love It podcast. Harold Bloom in the Western Canon says this, Except for Shakespeare, Dickinson manifests more cognitive originality than any other Western poet since Dante. Um, you know, of course, that's your authority, by the way. Harold mm-hmm. Bloom didn't go any higher than that. Uh, and, of course, the Dickinson he's referring to is Emily Dickinson, the unassuming American poet from Amherst, Massachusetts. He compares her to William Blake, concluding with this comment. Dickinson rethought everything for herself, but she wrote lyrical meditations rather than stage dramas or mythopoetic epics. Shakespeare has hundreds of personae and Blake dozens of what he called giant forms, but Dickinson kept to the capital letter I while practicing an art of singular economy. You know, Harold Bloom is probably the most famous literary critic in the English-speaking world. I mean, until his death, he was a professor at Yale. He wrote 40 books or more of literary criticism. Not that his opinion is final, but the broader point is that Dickinson, even by, you know, the highest pinnacle of, of Yale University, Dickinson is basically universally accepted standing alongside Walt Whitman as being the greatest of all American poets. She only published 10 poems in her lifetime, and even those were heavily edited. I guess that's pretty ironic from the vantage point of history. Oh, (laughs) totally. I mean, she is an ironic icon for many reasons. In fact, She'd be totally surprised to know that she's the GOAT. And for those who don't know what that means, the greatest of all times. I mean, her writing was personal. Much of it was inside letters to friends, personal friends and families. She writes for the most part in short words, many words that most of us know. Her poems don't sound fancy. In fact, they're deceptively simple looking. They're short. The first one we're going to read is one of her longest, and it's not very long. Her poems are auditorily accessible. In other words, you kind of can understand them when you read them out loud. She's iconic for her syntax, her style. Her style is so unique that once you see one poem or two poems, you'll recognize the rest of them anywhere. They're famous for two things, her dashes and well, among other things, but they're primarily famous in style for her dashes and capital letters. She's also famous for another reason, and one of those is her intriguing personal life. Her story, in some ways, is just bizarre. Her brother Austin's mistress, Mabel Loomis Todd, moved to Amherst in 1881. That was five years before Dickinson would ultimately die. She never even met Emily in person. But Mabel Loomis Todd is really the woman who made Emily Dickinson famous. Todd called Emily the myth of Anne Hurst, and in many ways, that's exactly what she is, a myth. 
And that reason alone is reason to stand out. The myth of Emily Dickinson has not diminished over the years as we've learned more about her life. In fact, the myth has only grown. For someone known for almost never leaving her bedroom, her life really has a lot of drama and intrigue, starting from her personal appearance. Did you know that she was a redhead? (laughs) (laughs) I did not. You know, um, I thought she had black hair. I mean, that's how it looks and really the only picture that we have of her. I know. But obviously, that's a black and white picture. Uh, Her hair was actually auburn. Although it is the only certified picture of her, I will say there is a second picture of her that they found in 1995. It surfaced... Uh, beyond the one that was taken for as a teenager, but it it hasn't been authenticated. So do you think this new picture is legit? Probably, although usually when new things come out like that, they're scammers, people trying to make a quick buck. But in this case, the owner bought the picture just for $400. That doesn't sound like a big scam. And it's been surrendered for free to Amherst College for further study. As of 2019, which is the latest article I've seen on it, it's not scientifically confirmed, but there's a lot of evidence to suggest that the picture really is the true likeness of Emily Dickinson, just older. So I kind of think it's kind of cool. But her appearance and her red hair, that's not even, (laughs) that's really not even the intrigue of of what's made her interesting. And it's going to take us three episodes to discuss first her style, her life, And then the feud involving the publishing of her work. We also want to talk about some of her most important and recognizable works. So that's the plan. Today we'll talk about the context of her work, her style. We'll highlight a couple of her most anthologized poems. And then later we'll get into her life story. We'll look at some of the later poems. I will look at some of the juicy and scandalous stuff and figure out how in the world that Harvard University gets the royalties for her poetry. (laughs) (laughs) To this day, Dickinson poems, as she wrote them, are still not in the public domain. And there's a reason for that. Wow. You know, that sounds like we've got a lot of ground to cover. Um, So let's jump in with some historical context. As you know, I'm prone to enjoy right there. Uh, Emily Dickinson was born on December 10th, 1830 in Amherst, Massachusetts. Uh, Massachusetts is in the northeast corner of the United States on the coast north of New York City. Amherst to this day is a small college town, 67 miles north and inland from Boston. Um, If you drive and want to visit the Dickinson House, which you can uh, because today it's a museum, it'll take you a little over an hour from Boston. Of course, that's today. But what about in the time period in which she lived in the 1830s to the 1880s? Uh, Remember that most of her writing came between 1858 and 1864. At that time, Amherst College, um, which is a central landmark of the town, was just nine years old. And the main street was a dirt road. In fact, it's been said um, that Amherst College and Dickinson grew up together. And in a sense, that's an interesting way of looking at it. Um, Although Dickinson would never have been allowed to attend Amherst College because it was an all-boys school. Uh, However, uh, Amherst was and is an academic town. And her household, in particular, was very involved with the college. Uh, One of the things we know about Emily Dickinson, for sure, is that she was a voracious reader and had access to an extraordinarily large and varied supply of reading materials. I mean, just for starters, um, she read two newspapers every day and kept up, um, not just with world events, but with cultural trends. She read all the popular novels like uh, The Bronte Girls and George Eliot, uh, even the ones her father disapproved of. He still gave her access to them. But she didn't just read. She studied. She studied Shakespeare and the Bible extensively. She was interested in the hard sciences as well. I mean, Emily was as educated, as well-read, and as actively informed of the ideas and the events of her day as any woman of her time period So, you know, as we look at the time period, there are a few things that stand out that really highly influenced her thinking and work. Uh, The first of these would be uh, the Christian faith. In 1850, there were about 23 million Americans. About 75% of those were attending a Christian church at least once a week. 
America was so notably religious that uh, when Alexis de Tocqueville visited, by the way, one of my fam- uh, more favorite uh, writers, he said, There is no country in the world where the Christian religion retains a greater influence over the souls of men than in America. You know, in Dickinson's hometown of Amherst during her growing up years, there were four influential religious revivals. You know, and a revival is when a celebrated preacher would come to town and everyone uh, attended meetings in the church. Many of them at the end of the service would renew their commitment to God or make a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Ministers uh, like the famous uh, Charles G. Finney held meetings and thousands of people would attend. Once he boasted of speaking to as many as 50,000 people in a single weekend, and many of the most devoted attenders were women, You know, which is interesting in light of all the political reforms these women affected during this same time period. Uh, Christian women as a political group made a huge political impact on a national scale in the second half of the 19th century. Uh, collectively, these spiritual revivals are what today we call the Second Great Awakening, and they directly led to three big, very important social reform movements. The first being the temperance movement, which was uh, a call for people to stop drinking alcohol. The second was abolition, which called for people to fight for the end of slavery. And finally, the third, uh, women's suffrage, which would give women the right to vote. Now, that's quite a bit of activity going on in that time period. (laughs) Well, true. And let me point out that all three of these social movements show up in Dickinson's work in various ways. First of all, and this is not something that's possible to to miss, Dickinson often uses the language of the Bible to describe things. She uses biblical allusions as metaphors. I mean, she contemplates and challenges the exception, accepted assumptions about the Bible and about the afterlife. I mean, the Bible heavily informed her thinking. This plays out in her subject matter as well as her style. But beyond the Bible, Dickinson uses the structure of her Christian hymnal in her work. And this is a kind of a fun thing. You know, a hymnal, if you're not familiar with that word, it's just a songbook. At that time, if you were going to go to church, the church services would consist of praying, of course, singing hymns out of these common songbooks, and then listening to a preacher, you know, give a lesson. The hymns, at least many of them, used a rhyme scheme and a meter that we call today the common meter. In other words, they would have the specific beat, and it would be seven hard beats followed by seven soft ones. Ba-dump, 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 ba-dump. One line would have four beats, and then the next line would have three. If you want to think of it this way, she used the same meter for her poems as John Newton did for that famous song, Amazing Grace. So, if you really wanted to, you can actually sing almost all of Dickinson's poems to the tune of Amazing Grace. <laughs> and I would like to point out that I think it's highly fascinating that she picked up music as a way to rhyme her words. Right, and to organize uh, her lyric, exactly. It, it actually does make it more lyrical and flowing. And, you know, and um, uh, as for Amazing Grace, that's kind of funny. Uh, it's, not, it's not the same, but you can sing most rock songs to the tune of Pomp and Circumstance <laughs> if you've ever been in a graduation. Uh, you know, that's the song they play at just about every graduation ceremony in the United States. And, you know, sometimes when I'm at graduation, which is basically just about every year, uh, as a way of entertaining myself, I'll substitute rock song lyrics for pomp and circumstance. <laughs> I dare listeners to go out there and insert the words from Stairway to Heaven or Freebird in the middle of pomp and circumstance. <laughs> it works. You'll be amazed. Well, I didn't know that. That's funny. And I'm not sure I know all the words to, to Freebird, but maybe I should. You know? <laughs> <laughs> they're not They're not Emily Dickinson no, level. No, well... Religion isn't the only social movement that shows up in her work. I mean, she has many metaphors uh, about alcohol uh, because that was a big deal at that time. And it would have been in the paper every day. I mean, she wasn't a a teetotaler. In fact, in her later years, she was known to send down a glass of sherry for Mabel Todd, who was performing for the family downstairs. But, you know, the events of the day although they're not directly referenced in her work. I mean, she didn't write about politics at all, but she used things from the day, from her culture, 
in their language to make larger points about how life was working. So the language of politics, of elections, of of the social things of, that were interesting to people, it's everywhere. And finally, of course, uh, we need to remember uh, that she never published any of her work, and that might have been because of some political and social activity within her own home. Uh, her father had very aggressive and outspoken views about women. Um, he was opinionated, vocally so. He did not believe in empowering women. Ironically, and I find this so ironic, Emily is not the only published author in the Dickinson family. Her father, Edward, published essays. And in his essays, he claimed that women's brains were literally physically in. Inferior. <laughs> mm. Let me quote him directly. Uh, well, at least the end of one of his essays. Should you like to dispute daily upon politics and religion in your family, modesty and sweetness of disposition and patience and forbearance and fortitude are the cardinal virtues of the female sex. These will atone for the want of brilliant talents or great attainments, says the man who fathered probably the greatest writer uh, <laughs> on the American continent. I mean, he never walked back, even after living with this woman for 40 years. He didn't know his daughter. I will talk a little bit more about that in the next episode. But Dickinson, Emily Dickinson, although she too is very forceful and brave, in her own way, she did it in her writing. And so she never publicly defied her father by publishing any of her work uh, in her lifetime. Well, there is very little that I love more than irony. <laughs> so that's a great story. Uh, you know, I did want to end by mentioning the biggest event to ever affect the United States occurred during Dickinson's lifetime, and that is the Civil War. Uh, you know, one of my favorite historians, uh, Richard Hofstetter, talked about the fact that there are two events that did more to shape the United States than any events in history. Number one was the Civil War. Number two was the Great Depression. Oh, wow. So, uh, you know, after Eli Whitney had invented the cotton gin, uh, wide-scale production of cotton basically resulted in prosperity in the North and the South, resting on the uh, foundation of slavery. Uh, and it would take the Civil War and the death of at least 620,000 men to end this. Uh, the Civil War affected everyone's personal lives across the nation. Um, even if you did not live where the fighting was actually occurring, you know, even in Amherst, which is well in the north and safely away from the fighting, it was affected because death was everywhere. Uh, everyone knew someone who had died in the war. And in Dickinson's case, her brother Austin did not go to war. Instead, he paid $500 for a substitute to go in his place, which was controversial. I can see why. Yeah, well, this was, uh, it led to the phrase that this was a, a rich man's fight or a rich man's war and a poor man's fight. Um, so, but it was a common practice. Uh, but one of his best friends, Fraser Stearns, did not uh, get a substitute, and he did die on the battlefield. And that loss was very personal. And of course, Dickinson is not a war poet by any means. But it is interesting for me as a historian that a poet who is so attuned to mortality and death wrote almost all of her work during the war years. I mean, in fact. 1862 was Dickinson's most prolific year for writing, and that is smack dab in the middle of the war. And 1862 was a particularly bad year for the Union. It looked like they were not going to win. Wow. Well, let's go back to the stern death. You know, Emily wrote thousands of letters during her lifetime. And in fact, that's really how we know who she was. We know her not through what she wrote about herself but uh, to us, but through the letters that she wrote to other people. And in one letter, she talks about Fraser's death. Let me quote her. She says this, Austin is chilled by Fraser's murder. He says his brain keeps saying over, Fraser is killed, Fraser is killed, just as father told it to him. Two or three words of lead that drop so deep, they keep weighing. Now she wrote that letter in March of 1862. There is a lot of death in Dickinson's writing. Death 
know, Dickinson experienced personal death beyond, you know, things that she read in the paper or people that she knew from the war. And her growing up years, I mean, her childhood home was right next to a cemetery. You could see the cemetery right outside their kitchen window, and there was a constant in and out of coffins. One year, it said, in her childhood years, 12 people that she knew, she watched them get buried right next to her house. You know, you, you can't imagine that that wouldn't have an impact. <laughs> uh, well, it would. And, you know, don't forget that consumption or tuberculosis, as we would know it, was the number one killer, even more widespread than the death on the battlefield in those days. Well, that's a great point. And Edward Dickinson, Emily Dickinson's father, seems particularly concerned with consumption, which isn't unusual. But in his case, you know, the way I read it, feels a little obsessive. He literally believed that consumption ran in his wife's family. Hmm. And we have documented evidence that on multiple occasions he would diagnose Emily with being consumptive and then he would run her through all sorts of these preventive measures which you know I know this is history but you know from the historical perspective uh, it looks a little unhealthy I mean twice he literally pulled her out of school for the rest of an entire term because of her colds the year she went off to seminary he brought her back because he was afraid she was going to get consumption there in 1851 when a couple of her peers did die from consumption, Emily was do- was dosed with this thing called glycerine, and she had to take it for two years. So Dickinson, in one letter, she said this about her father. Father is quite a hand to give medicine, especially if it is not desirable to the patient. <laughs> not desirable to the patient. Well, you know, in defense of Mr. Uh, Dickinson, if he is to be defended, uh, and there is no doubt that, that, that Edward was a cold and stern father— But there is no doubt that death was always looming in the minds of most Americans in the 1860s, and it would have been his mind also. He likely was not alone in how he was reacting to this unseen killer. And, you know, Emily Dickinson, even as a teenager, along with everyone in her generation, was forced continually to contemplate what death meant far earlier than teenagers would today, at least in the American context. Well, and and contemplate she did. Since we're talking about death— Dickinson wrote over 500 poems about death. I mean, it was her most dominant theme, which, you know, that kind of sounds morbid uh, when you say it that way. But a lot of her poems about death really aren't. She didn't come to any firm conclusions about what death even meant. Um, She could not completely accept Christianity and its explanation of the afterlife, but she doesn't seem to have completely rejected it either. You know, again... Uh, this should not have been uncommon attitude for for that day. In general, war always creates a lot of uncertainty, and the Civil War created the absolute most uncertainty in U.S. history, especially about death and the afterlife. You know, uh, in her case, because of her personal uh, and intellectual giftedness, her her education of both religion and science, anyway. You know, reading daily doses of newspaper entries about disease and violence, it, it really it should almost be expected to find her mind engaging in this public, uh, excuse me, in this puzzling topic and really trying to sort it out. Yeah, puzzling is a good word. I mean, she sees the contradictions in life and death. And this first poem that we're going to read explores one of the contradictions that she sees in death. I want to start with it because it's a good introduction and how we can think about all of her poetry. It's very much about the contradictions, and that's what she writes about. You know, she takes two ideas, uh, sometimes ideas that are opposing forces crashing back and forth. She takes these two true opposite things and illustrates that they must exist together, even though they don't seem like they could possibly go together. That was the genius of her work. That's exactly how she writes, and we'll explore how this plays out in a lot of different poems, but let's start with this one about death. We reference her poems mostly by the first line, and the first line of this poem is, Because I Could Not Stop for Death. It was first published in that first edition of her work that was published in 1890. When this poem was first published, the editor, Mrs. Todd, omitted the fourth stanza. She also gave it a title. She titled this poem, The Chariot, after the classical picture of Apollo. But unfortunately for Mrs. Todd, 
by making these adjustments, she changed the meaning. She missed the contradiction in the work. This poem, as Dickinson wrote it, would not be published until 1955. Now, if you think about that, that's almost 100 years after she wrote it. Scholars think that she wrote the poem in 1862. And although no one really knows for sure, it might have been inspired by the death of an older sister of one of Emily's close friends named Olivia Coleman. Coleman died in 1848 of a tubercular hemorrhage while she was out riding in a carriage. The poem references a carriage. And we do know, because Dickinson put in a letter about the time that she wrote the poem, that the deaths of her family and her friends, they were deeply affecting her. I want to quote her in in her letter. Perhaps death gave me awe for friends, striking sharp and early, for I held them since in a brittle love of more alarm than peace. You know, in that same letter, she'll go on to say that for her, the supernatural was the only natural disclosed. And then she closes the letter saying this, Should you, before this reaches you, experience immortality, who will inform me of the exchange? Could you, with honor, avoid death? I entreat you, sir. It would bereave. Let me add this. In this letter, as Dickinson is prone to do, she capitalizes the word death, using it like she would a proper name, as if death is a person. Avoid death, I entreat you, is how she said. So there's your first hint in in decoding her puzzling poems. Here's the first poem that we're going to read. It's not titled, so we reference it by its first line, but it is one of her most famous. Because I could not stop for death. Uh, Gary, would you read this for us? Because I could not stop for death, he kindly stopped for me. The carriage held but just ourselves and immortality. We slowly drove, he knew no haste, and I had put away my labor and my leisure too for his civility. We passed the school where children strove at recess in the ring. We passed the fields of gazing grain. We passed the setting sun. Or rather, he passed us. The dews drew quivering and chill, for only gossamer my gown, my tippet, my tool. We paused before a house that seemed a swelling of the ground. The roof was scarcely visible, the cornice in the ground. Since then, to centuries and yet, feel shorter than the day, I first surmised the horse's heads were toward eternity. All right, let's try to tackle it. Let's start with structure. It's written in the common meter. So yes, if you want to sing this to the tune of Amazing Grace, you actually could. Because I could not stop for death. He kindly stopped. <laughs> Great rendition there. I know. Uh, but uh, it's more. there's more distinctive things about that. If you're going to look how the poem is written on the page, the first thing that would jump out at you are the dashes. I've mentioned it but she is famous for how she uses dashes. If you Google the phrase Dickinson Manuscripts, you can see her handwritten copies of these poems. The the manuscripts are expressive, they're distinctive, and she uses dashes instead of commas or periods or anything else. This poem does have a period, but it's at the end of the first stanza, not at the end of the poem. Everywhere else, she's using dashes. Sometimes they're at the end of the lines, but sometimes they're between words on a line. It's where it looks like it seems it's where she wants us to intentionally pause at these specific places in her poem. And it is in the pauses that she creates additional meaning. So let's take, for example, the first stanza of this poem. There are three dashes because I could not stop for death. And then she puts a dash. She's telling you, okay, this is where you stop. Then she says this, he kindly stopped for me. There's another dash. The carriage held but just ourselves. And there's our third and last dash. And that's how it's going to go all the way through the poem. She stops you where she wants to stop you with these dashes. And there are 19 in this poem. If you're looking at the handwritten manuscript, you also see that it's spaced with some words even only on one line. You know, we're used to this kind of manipulation of space and punctuation, modern poetry, 
but nobody, I mean, nobody was doing this sort of thing in 1862. So we have the dashes. Let's go to the next thing that she's known for, her capital letters. She doesn't use capital letters in the ordinary way. In English, we capitalize proper nouns, specific names of places like Christie or Washington, D.C. or Brazil. And perhaps she's doing that in the first line. I could not stop for death. Death is capitalized. Death is obviously personified. So in this case, death is a specific name. The person driving the carriage, Mr. Death. You can think of it that way. Or you could, like you would say, I couldn't stop for Shriver, so he kindly stopped for me. I could not stop for death. He kindly stopped for me. But if we go through the poem, she's just not capitalizing the things that are personified. Death is capitalized, but carriage is also capitalized. Ourselves is capitalized. Immortality is capitalized. That's just in the first stanza. She capitalizes these words irregularly all the way through the piece. Stanza two only has one capital letter, civility. Stanza three has a lot more. School, children, recess, ring, fields, gazing grain. They're all capitalized. It seems that capitalized words for her is a point of emphasis. She's capitalizing the first letter in the word of something maybe that's important. She doesn't do the all caps thing like we do now. She just capitalizes the first letter of specific words. A lot of times they're nouns, but not always So these dashes and capital letters are two big things that she carries throughout this poem, but not just this. It's a characteristic of all of her poetry. So once you get past the structure and start looking at meaning, (laughs) is there something else that's really specific to Dickinson uh, in terms of her style? Of course there is. I mean, Dickinson goes from sounding like a simple poet to a highly sophisticated one pretty quickly. And a lot of it has to do with these contradictions. Uh, She plays around with ambiguity. So let me define what the word ambiguity means. In literature, ambiguity is when a writer uses a word, makes a sentence, creates a situation that has multiple meanings, but it's not an accident. It's on purpose. What this does is to allow the reader to understand the poem in different ways. So there could be a more literal way of looking at this poem. Maybe a girl just died. Maybe there is a carriage hauling her away to the cemetery. Maybe this is about a trip over there. That's one way of looking at it. But then you could look at it in a more symbolic way. Look when we get to that third stanza and she's going past the schoolyard. Is that a representation of childhood? Is the setting sun a representation of old age, the passage of life? And maybe none of it's literal. But maybe they're both true in different ways. Maybe you're supposed to read it both ways. Depending on how you want to interpret these different ambiguities, the poem develops very different ideas, some of which look like they conflict. Dickinson's purpose is to help us understand the contradictions in life and help us make them together, make them fit together. Death, obviously, is a very complicated thing that's full of contradictions, and that's the topic that she wants to talk about. So let's read the first stanza again so I can explain and show you a really good example of how simple things can be complicated. I find it very interesting. Uh, The very first thing I picked up on Emily Dickinson or that stood out to me was this whole ambiguity thing that two things could be true. And it's in psychology, it's a lot like something called a thematic apperception test where you have people look at a picture and you have them describe what's going on in the picture. And they're really not describing what's going on in the picture. They're really telling you their worldview and injecting themselves into uh, the picture. So I get the idea that she does a lot of this, too. Yeah, uh, for sure. So, but, but let's look at this first stanza, and I'll show you an example of how complicated and layered some very simple-looking words can actually be. Because I could not stop for death, he kindly stopped for me. The carriage held but just ourselves and immortality. So here we go. Death is driving a carriage. Wow, he's something of a gentleman, isn't he? That's a polite way to be taken into the afterlife (laughs) in a carriage. Except he stops to take someone to the afterlife. Isn't that, by definition, an ungentlemanly and unkind thing to do if you're death? But the speaker doesn't seem ready for death. Maybe the speaker doesn't have time for death. Uh, Maybe the speaker's young, doesn't feel her immortality. Perhaps she doesn't know how to stop. You know, I have to be honest. I'll I'll just speak for myself. I don't really want to stop for death, and I'm not as young as the girl that we think she's talking about in the poem. 
But of course, being ready for death doesn't matter. Death stops for us. But then there's that word kindly. The kindly word, it's not capitalized. Is Emily being sarcastic and ironic? Is she saying, uh, oh, he kindly stopped for me, as in he's unkind? Or is she saying something different? Is death actually kind in the way that he approaches us? When death comes to get us, is he a gentleman? Does he kindly take us to the afterlife? Of course, we don't really know. But if we think about how many carriages Dickinson saw through that window of her childhood kitchen going in and out of that cemetery, Dickinson thought about it both ways. So she wrote the words in such a way as to capture both of those ideas. Because I could not stop for death, he kindly stopped for me. The carriage held but just ourselves. Oh, and immortality. Now, immortality is capitalized. Of course, we know we die alone. No one comes with us when we die. But are we really alone when we die? Is immortality there? Is immortality almost like a person? Look how she places the pause. There's a dash and then the word immortality, suggesting maybe immortality is catching us off guard. We didn't expect it to see it in that carriage so quickly with death. It's personified too. Immortality in this poem is its own thing. Uh, that is an awful lot to say in just 19 words. <laughs> I know. She packs it in like that. And with that idea, those big ideas in our brain, she takes us through time and space to the next stanza. Read the next one. We slowly drove. He knew no haste, and I had put away my labor and my leisure too for his civility. You know, death is in charge, but not in a hurry. That makes sense. Everything is in the past tense. But death is not putting the things away. Death isn't taking anything from the speaker. The speaker is, I had put away my labor and my leisure. All that I had going on in life, I put in the past. But why do I do this? Did I want to put away my labor and my leisure? Was I made to do it? Again, we see another strange word. Why? Well, for his civility. Civility, that word means politeness. I put all of my life's work in order to be polite to death? Well, that just makes no sense. Oh, and I wanted to point out one more thing. Civility, in a way, don't rhyme. Now, why does that matter? In the first stanza, she set up this rhyming scheme. Uh, me and immortality do rhyme. And in traditional poetry, whatever pattern you set up in the first stanza, you're going to follow all the way through the poem. So in this case, we would expect the fourth line away should rhyme with the fourth. The, well, the second line should rhyme with the fourth line. They, would, they should match. Well, away is a very easy word to rhyme. I mean, we stay, hey, may, tray, gay, dismay. I mean, I could go on and on with that kind of stuff. Well, and so could Emily Dickinson. But she f refuses to rhyme that simple word away. Instead, she creates this thing we call a slant rhyme, something that almost rhymes but deliberately does not rhyme. Now, what is the effect of a slant rhyme? It makes us uncomfortable. Our ear recognizes that the rhyme is wrong. We don't like listening to slant rhymes. They unsettle us. When her poems were first published, the editing team, quote, fixed all of the slant rhymes. They just assumed Dickinson was sloppy and didn't rhyme because she couldn't rhyme. That was a garbage idea. She absolutely could have rhymed that if she wanted to. But she's creating an effect, and Mabel missed it. She didn't catch it. Dickinson wants us to be uncomfortable. This is an unsettling carriage ride. There's an emotion here, and she's conveying it. She put away all of life to make this transition into the afterlife, but it's not very comfortable. You know, um, I find the emotional tone here slightly unsettling, too. I mean, this poem treats death in this kind of matter-of-fact business transaction kind of way, at least at this point. And 
Uh, you know, we don't feel any anger or even any fear coming from the speaker. It, it's like the dead person is kind of compliant or just resigned. I know. It's beyond compliant. The dead person is trying to be polite. Civility. <laughs> Death is a gentleman in the carriage, and the lady is trying to be a gentle lady. And so they drive on. We passed the school where children strove as recess in the ring. We passed the fields of gazing grain. We passed the setting sun. There's even more rhetorical devices. I mean, she's a very systematic writer. There's an anaphora here, which means the same phrase over and over again. We passed, we passed, we passed. And what is the effect of that repetition? Well, we feel the time passing or not passing, however you want to understand time. It's ambiguous. Is the carriage driving across space or through time? We see a lot of alliteration drawing our attention to the setting sun, to the gazing grain. But of course, grain can't gaze. We're not gazing at the grain. It's gazing at us. It's being personified. The work, the grain is looking at her. In other words, life is passing her by. Or rather, he passed us. The dews drew quivering and chill. For only gossamer, my gown, my tippet, my tool. Again, chill and tool. Those are half rhymes. There's alliteration. But we have a new thing in this stanza. We call it a chiasmus. And we have puns. Look at how she structures the lines about her outfit. Let's start with the ambiguity of the pronoun he. I'm assuming that he is the son. He passes. Is that a symbolic life or a lifetime? Is it literally the time of day? Is it both? It gets cold. The dews drew quivering, which seems to be a little bit more personification since dew is capitalized and quivering is something people do. But what is the girl wearing? Only gossamer. Well, that's a pun. Gossamer has two meanings. The first meaning of gossamer is that filmy substance that spiders make. And of course, that's the kind of thing you see in spooky shows about corpses. But that's not the only meaning of the word gossamer. Gossamer is like a delicate, thin material that you would make a nightgown out of. So let's look at the second pun, tippet. A tippet is a shawl that women wear. That's an old-fashioned word. But it's also the name for the ceremonial thing that clergymen wear on their robes. It's decorative, like you would see today in a Catholic church. So there's a lot to think about. There's so much going on. On. Notice how she reverses the order of the garments. Gossamer, my gown, my tippet, only tool. She's got the material on the outside and the article of clothing on the inside. Oh my. So, uh, <laughs> so why do it that way? What is she trying to say? I know. It's ambiguous. Oh, and by the way, that stanza has six dashes. There's a lot of pauses. We don't know exactly. I mean, this is where every person, like you were saying, has to read in it uh, what they believe it's saying for themselves. I mean, that's your responsibility to make you know meaning of these images. It's a puzzle. My take is maybe she's suggesting that things around her are getting thinner and thinner. The spaces between the concrete world and the next one, they're widening. It could be that. Uh, the next stanza, by the way, is the one uh, that the editor deleted, but we're not going to delete it. Read it. We paused before a house that seemed a swelling of the ground. The roof was scarcely visible. The cornice in the ground. I mean, you know, clearly she's talking about a cemetery, the swelling of the ground. The grave has just been dug and filled up. That's how I read that, too. But notice she's rhyming again. In fact, she's more than rhyming. She's repeating the word ground twice. The ground is comfortable. There's obviously something sticking up. That word cornice is a strange word. I mean, that's an architectural feature on fancy roofs. It's ornamental. But why is death pausing? And notice that she went from saying, you know, death is driving. That would be like in the first, and she's there as a passenger, but she uses the first person plural, we, she and death together, there's consensus. There's not any animosity. Since then, two centuries, and yet feel shorter than the day, I first surmised the horses' heads 
or toward eternity. Uh, okay, so this poem ends with a dash in those words, day and eternity. And even I can spot that they don't rhyme. No, they don't rhyme. Uh, they're opposite in meaning, too. Uh, another uh, new feature of this last stanza, look, she took this giant leap in time. Centuries have passed, but the centuries seem shorter than the first day she took that carriage ride. This kind of makes sense to me. I mean, time has sped up into eternity. You know, um, I can understand that. And yet, do we know what she's saying in a general sense? I mean, what is her understanding of death? Hence the big question. I mean, she's speculating on what the afterlife may feel like, for one thing, at least in regard to time. But she's speculating on more than that. She's speculating on the transition. I want to point out one more word. I think it's one of the most interesting words of the whole poem. The word surmise. You know, to surmise something means to suppose something is true without having any evidence for it. On the first day of the speaker's death, if we want to say it that way, she was surmising. She was guessing about the afterlife. She's guessing about eternity. The emotions she chose to embrace, they're not shock, fear. No, there's not rage. She's surmising. Surmising is this idea that we should take as we look at our own morta- immortality. You know, the word you used when you said what people felt like about death during war was uncertainty. And, and I see a lot of uncertainty in this poem. And yet, there's not a whole lot of anxiety in there. It's written in the past tense. It's all past. And presently, we are left without much to say. Life, death, it's coming, it's going, it's a contradiction. And so we have a quintessentially Emily Dickinson poem. (laughs) You know, you can't read a lot of them at one time. They can be pretty tiring. Well, and you can read them over and over again for sure. Uh, It's a choice. You can read them for this first pass understanding, and a lot of people can enjoy it that way. But if you really are stressed out and you want to focus and clear your mind of every other problem... Take a minute and focus on one of these poems. And and there's a lot in enjoying the depth that you get to see. When Mabel Loomis Todd created that first edition, she included this poem. But she started the book of poetry with another little really short poem. And I want us to finish by reading it. This is my letter to the world that never wrote to me the simple news that nature told with tender majesty. Her message is committed to hands I cannot see. For her love of her, sweet countrymen, judge tenderly of me. Just like the last one, it has capitalized words in unusual places. World, me, new, nature, majesty. It employs dashes as its only form of punctuation. We don't have time to go through it word by word, but there's a lot to think about. It's ambiguous. It wasn't the first poem she ever wrote, by the way. It did not serve as an introduction to anything that she wrote to anyone. We know no context for what is written. But she says this, This is my letter to the world that never wrote to me. This is the final thought that I want to end with. Emily did not publish her work. It was published without her consent, without her knowledge, And until 1955, it was significantly altered and published at the whims of other people, one of which didn't even know her. And yet, in at least one poem, we see herself as an agent speaking ideas from nature with a capital N to a larger audience. Emily Dickinson was listening to something, to someone, uh, and if we can tell by the fact that it's been around a long time, there must be truth with a capital T in some of her words. You know, her message was never mailed or directed to anyone, at least in a world context, but it certainly has resonated with a lot of us. The first printing of that first collection of her work, the one that was heavily revised in 1890, sold 10,000 copies and it went through six reprintings in six months. There have been many reprintings in languages all across the globe, but they're never simple. In fact, it took seven years to translate it into Portuguese. The most recent and comprehensive edition of her work came out in 2016, and it reprinted her manuscripts. The most common one, the typed version that we're more familiar with, came out in 1999 by a man named R.W. Franklin. It contains 1,789 
distinct poems. 1,685 of them are traced to original manuscripts, 104 are transcripts from things that she's written, and nine are the ones that she published herself anonymously at the time. But we don't really know how many poems she has. It's not really agreed upon. Uh, What is a poem? Some people call some of her letters poems. They were written in that same style. When Emily Dickinson died, her sister Lavinia, or Vinnie as they called her, went into the room and she found 40 little handmade books that Emily had folded and sewn together to produce what was later called a fascicle. Dickinson left hidden in her room 40 fascicles and 15 more sets that were put together but not really sewn together. What are we to make of Dickinson's letter or her letters to the world? In the next episode, we're going to take a closer look at her life, the part we know to be true, the part that we speculate about. We'll look at a couple more of her poems, and perhaps we'll join the millions over the last hundred years who have enjoyed but been mystified by the myth of Amherst. (laughs) Wow, what an introduction. And to think that we haven't even talked about her life yet. Uh, You know, there's a lot to unpack when it comes to Emily Dickinson. So thank you for joining us this week for this introductory discussion to the works of Emily Dickinson. As always, if you enjoyed our discussion, please share our podcast with your friends and acquaintances. Uh, Send them this episode in a text on Twitter or your Instagram, email, LinkedIn, or however you share the things in the world that you support. I guess in some ways this is our letter to the world, and we are glad to share it with you. Also, don't forget um, our website is howtolovelitpodcast.com. If you're a teacher, we have free listening guides for all of our episodes. If you want to support us or chat with us, you can do that there as well. And of course, that's where you can get all the How to Love Lit Podcast merch. So until next time, peace out. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.